Welcome back to the Governance Podcast. My name is Andrew Blick. I'm the director of the Centre for British Politics and Government. Today's podcast is going to be discussing Brexit and it's co-sponsored by the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society and the Centre for British Politics and Government. We're very pleased to have Vernon Bogdanor as our guest to discuss his new book, Beyond Brexit, Towards a British Constitution. Uh, Vernon's very well known as a uh, as a commentator on all, all, all matters constitutional in the UK over a number of decades, written a uh, number of very important books on the subject, uh, ranging from the constitutional role of the monarchy to the constitutional role of referendums and an overview of the, of the British constitution. Uh, he's a research professor here at King's at uh, DPE, Department of Political Economy, and he's also Emeritus Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Oxford, is that correct? Good. So uh, I'm now going to go into talking to him about this book. So first of all, uh, why did you write this book? Well, um, I suppose I ought to begin by apologising for inflicting upon the public yet another <laughs> book about Brexit. I think someone said that everything that can be said about Brexit has already been said, but it's not yet been said by everyone. (laughs) Uh, However, my book is not about the rights and wrongs of Brexit, the whys and wherefores, but a different issue, the question of how Europe and how Brexit has influenced the British constitution and the British system of government. And I believe there's been a huge influence, most obviously, Without Europe, we might never have had the referendum at all, because our first national referendum, of course, was not in 2016, but in 1975. And that referendum was, again, on the question of whether we should remain in the European community, as the European Union then was, which we joined in 1973, or whether we should leave. And that referendum had a very different result from that of 2016. There was a two-to-one majority for leaving... for sorry, a two-to-one majority for remaining in the European community. Now, before the 1970s, the referendum was widely thought of as unconstitutional in Britain. It was thought it went against the sovereignty of Parliament. And indeed, in 1945, Winston Churchill suggested a referendum to continue the wartime coalition. But Attlee, the uh, leader of the Labour Party, dismissed this as being very un-British and the instrument of dictator, so we didn't have one then. So without Europe, it's perfectly possible we'd never have had the referendum at all. And what is the main, beyond that, what is the main thesis of, of this book? What's your general view on the, on the, like, the impact on the, on the British constitution of Brexit? Well, the main argument is this, that Europe actually gave us a form of constitution. It's often says that Britain had no constitution at all. But actually, while we were in the European community, European Union, for 46 years, we were under a constitution because uh, the Treaty of Rome and the subsequent treaties laid down certain things which Britain could and could not do. The most obvious thing which Britain could not do, which many people in Britain wanted to do, was to limit immigration from the European Union. So that meant that Parliament was no longer sovereign as it had been before 1973. There was at least one thing that Parliament couldn't do, namely limit immigration from the European Union. And of course, there were other European Union laws restricting what Parliament could do. 
And that, in fact, was one of the reasons for the Brexit vote. People said, take back control, restore the sovereignty of Parliament. Now, of course, the question is, will the sovereignty of Parliament be restored in the same form as it was before 1973? Because before 1973, the British Constitution was very different from what it is now. We had no referendum, as I've said. We didn't have the Human Rights Act. We didn't have devolution. Now, all these things alter our constitutional system. And the question is whether we'll go back to the status quo ante or not. And the status quo ante itself was not as much applauded uh, as perhaps it seems to be. In a famous lecture in the mid-1970s, Lord Hailsham, who was Lord Chancellor in various Conservative governments, said that Britain was an elective dictatorship. In other words, the sovereignty of Parliament meant in practice that a government elected by a majority could do absolutely what it liked, and that, he felt, was rather dangerous. Now, returning to the uh, referendum, which, as you say, has become, since the issue of being in the European Union, as it's now called, came onto the agenda, a big part of our constitution and our way of taking decisions. As you've shown in earlier books you've written, we were actually arguing about whether we should not, whether or not we should introduce the referendum for a long while, back as far as the as, as the late nineteenth century. People like A. V. Dicey first introduced the idea. Uh, one important commentator, one important proponent of the referendum, uh, Strachey, Johnson O. Strachey, uh, wrote an important book on that in the nineteen twenties. And one point he made was that although he was in favour of referendums, he saw them as potentially having a beneficial effect. Uh, He said that, to quote him, the referendum should never be used in answer to abstract questions, such as, are you in favour of a monarchy? Now, in 2016, uh, at at the referendum on, on European Union membership, 23rd of June, it's arguable, perhaps we were asked quite an abstract question, should we remain in... Or should we leave the European Union? And the leave part of the of the question was arguably quite abstract. Do you see that as being a problem? Could it have been more specific? Might there have been a better way of handling it? Well, was it really an abstract question? Wasn't the question really, do you favour the repeal of the European Communities Act of, of 1972? That, that was the implication. And uh, you weren't being asked... What form of repeal do you favour? What should be the precise relationship? So I I don't think it really was an abstract question in in that sense. And I think most people are perfectly aware of what was being asked. I hold the perhaps minority view that the referendum, although I disagreed with the outcome being a Remainer, but the referendum was a good exercise in democratic participation. It had a higher turnout, 72%, than any national election since 1992. And I believe most people thought very seriously about the outcome. They weighed up the arguments and decided for themselves. It's worth noting, perhaps, that the highest turnouts were in the leave areas, and the four lowest turnouts included three of the remain areas, Scotland, Northern Ireland and London. But as I say, I think it was an important exercise in democracy, and John Stuart Mill says somewhere, you don't learn how to ride a bicycle or how to swim by reading books about it, but by doing it, by, by participating, as it were. And similarly, you don't learn about democracy by reading the newspaper or reading books about it, by making decisions 
for yourself. And I think this is what the referendum asked people to do. So I take the perhaps minority view. It was a very healthy exercise. What do you think the reason is for the political turbulence that has taken place since then? I mean, you could argue that two prime ministers now have seen their careers destroyed by the referendum. How, how do you account for that and what's the significance of that in your view? Well, two may be an underestimate. I take the view that every Conservative prime minister since Harold Macmillan, except for Alec Douglas Hume, has been ruined by Europe. And of course, it also broke up the Labour Party in the 1980s. The only prime minister who triumphed over Europe is someone who's rather perhaps underestimated these days, Harold Wilson, whose referendum in 1975 led to a two-to-one majority for staying in. And apparently the day after the referendum, Harold Wilson said to his private secretary, and people say that I have no sense of strategy, that I can't think strategically. It was a remarkable achievement. But in answer to your question, the, the more recent problem has been simply this, that there's been a conflict between what the people want and what Parliament wants. And one of my colleagues in the King's Law Department has said that he thought the 2016 referendum was the most important constitutional event in Britain since the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, for this reason, that for the first time in its history, Parliament is voting for something it does not want. The majority of MPs were Remainers, the vast majority. The majority even of Conservative MPs were Remainers. The majority of the Cabinet voted Remain. And, of course, a large majority of peers voted Remain. Yet they are voting for Brexit. And the 2016 referendum set up a conflict between the principle of the sovereignty of the people and the principle of the sovereignty of Parliament. And that has not yet been resolved. And I think some of those who don't like the outcome of the referendum might agree with the French reactionary Joseph de Mestre, a strong opponent of the French Revolution, who said the principle of the sovereignty of the people is so dangerous that even if it were true, it ought to be concealed. And I think that is what, as it were, put a bomb into the British body politic. You see, 1975 was OK because, in Roy Jenkins' words, the people took the advice of those they were used to following. In 2016, they didn't take the advice of those they were used to following. And the popular perception, caricature if you like, is that the elites are trying to get round the result because they didn't like it. So in, in your estimation, do you think that uh, David Cameron learned the lesson of 1975 and felt that he could replicate the same trick that, that Howard Wilson had pulled off then? I'm sure that's right. And uh, poor David Cameron's come for a lot of stick. But the pressures on him were very considerable. One has to remember that in 2011, in response to a petition from the public, there was a debate on a referendum and 81 Conservative MPs broke a three-line whip to support a referendum. And the Conservatives also had UKIP, the old UKIP party, breathing down its neck. And Cameron, in his Bloomberg speech of 2013, said that consent for Europe was wafer thin and if it wasn't legitimised, hostility would grow. Now, in a sense, the result of the referendum proves that he was right because uh, Europe didn't have legitimacy. And it's reasonable to say, isn't it, that in a democracy, if the majority don't want Britain to remain in the European Union, Britain ought not to remain in the European Union. And I say that even though I regret the outcome. Now, moving on a bit to, to your background, uh, 
as I said in the introduction, you've been talking about the Constitution in the UK, different aspects of it, writing about it for a long while. What first interested you in the Constitution? Well, I thought it was a strange idea of the sovereignty of Parliament, that Parliament could do anything it liked. I thought, what an old principle. And I said, is that really true? Uh, um, someone in the 18th century said Parliament could do what it liked, except turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man, though I suppose in these days even that's not true. Um, I thought, how strange, is that really true? What does it actually mean? And I gradually began to think the idea was a bit of a nonsense, which inhibited the working of government. But it's the main reason why we don't have a codified or written constitution, because in a sense there's no point having one if Parliament can do anything it likes. So it was that that really got me interested in my first book was on, on devolution, how that was compatible with the sovereignty of Parliament. And here, too, I think Europe is causing problems between different views of devolution, because in Westminster, the view is that Parliament is still sovereign, whereas in Scotland, the view is that devolution is a product of the will of the Scottish people, which is superior to the sovereignty of Parliament. So you've got the base of conflict there. It's such a strange idea. That's what got me interested. And who, who were your teachers who might have influenced you early on? Oh, one of them was Geoffrey Marshall, who was um, a political scientist, very interested in the law. And another was the um, philosopher of law, H.L.A. Hart, both of whom were very sceptical about the idea of sovereignty. And he'd un undermined it. But I was very lucky at Oxford because um, although PPE tends to be denigrated as a degree these days, I think it was very good because it did link up different subjects and politics was treated philosophically and with great rigour and uh, analysis. And I think I learned a great deal from those people about how to look at constitutions. So you studied PPE and then went on to teach PPE? Yes, but I had a real job in between that. I mean, I, was, I worked for The Economist as a financial journalist, at which I was absolutely hopeless, and um, it, it, it didn't suit me at all, so I was lucky to find my bent in a different area. <laughs> Lots of former journalists go on to, uh, to, to greater success afterwards. As we're yeah, but I moment. mean, usually in the area in which they were journalists, but I say financial journalists just didn't suit me. I was asked to analyse company balance sheets, and I found that not in the least interesting and, and frightfully boring. And I think it's often true, actually, of people that they don't find their bent until a little after they take their degree. Some perhaps never find it. So I was lucky in finding my bent. And I say rather half-humorously that I found my bent in a subject which doesn't exist, namely the British Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> so would you describe yourself now as a political scientist or a historian or something else? Oh, I suppose constitutional historian, really. Right, right. And uh, when, when, did, when did you realise that? Did you always think you were a historian or is it something? Well, I suppose. I think all these problems have to be looked at historically. Um, I think politics can't be understood without history. And I'm very upset at a modern trend of divorcing political science from history and treating it as a kind of branch of arithmetic or mathematics or statistics. I think you miss everything. For example, if you compare different legislatures across Europe, you miss the distinctive features of each one. I think you can only understand the politics of the society through history. You mentioned earlier that, that this idea of the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, the, the problems it raises, the, the theoretical and practical problems associated with it. And in your book, you talk about the possibility that the UK will move towards a written constitution. 
I'm I'm sensing from the way your work's developed that you're increasingly convinced that's a good idea. Uh, do you think it, it's likely to happen? Well, I'm as you imply, I've been rather slow to come to that. And I wrote a book in 2009 called The New British Constitution, and a very distinguished law professor called Geoffrey Joel said I didn't have the courage of my convictions and draw out the argument that we do in fact need a codified constitution. And I think he was right in that criticism. And he was followed by equally distinguished people, the great judge Lord Bingham, uh, former Lord Chief Justice. He, he more or less said the same. He said we're in uncharted territory. And this was even before Brexit. We're in uncharted territory because of all the constitutional reforms we've had. And therefore we do need a constitution. And as you imply, the last chapter of my book makes that argument. But I have to confess that argument was made more in hope than in expectation. Uh, I'm not sure that it will. I, I have no real confidence. What I do think will happen is that um, Brexit exposes the nakedness of our unprotected constitution, and judges will fill that gap by becoming more activist, because we are leaving, as I said earlier, a constitutional system. Um, we, we hear a lot about entrenchment. We are disentrenching. We're coming back to an unprotected system. And even more, we're leaving the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, exiting from a major international human rights regime. So our rights are less well protected than in any other member state of the European Union. Now, the other 27 member states, of course, will continue to be guided by the European Union Charter. So it's worth asking ourselves the question, are, are, are our MPs so much more sensitive to the protection of human rights than legislators in other countries that they should be entrusted with this important function? I think they aren't, myself. Uh, and I think we it's great, very dangerous, I think, to live in an unprotected constitution, and I think the judges will step in and, and uh, occupy that field. And in that kind of scenario, you could potentially see clashes between judges and elected politicians on the on over who actually has mm. the legitimacy to take those kind of decisions. Mm. Now, historically in the UK, we've tended to have, because we don't have this written mm. constitution, a self-regulating mm. system mm. that there's a, a tacit understanding mm. that people behave themselves or know what the divisions mm. are. A good chap, know, and it's always a chap, it knows what's expected of a good chap and will behave accordingly. Yeah. There's no actual written constitution to hold them in check, but they don't need it. Now, is it possible that at the moment, politically in the UK, we're moving into an era where you have politicians, possibly at the head of parties, who actually make a virtue out of not being bound by the, by the conventions, out of actually not following the traditional rules, and in which case, what's, what, what's in place to stop them? I think you're absolutely right, and... Uh... It's our friend Peter Hennessy who called it the good chap theory of the Constitution, Indeed, yeah. I think. And I think you're right, it is breaking down. And um, it's important to remember that a lot of these rights are rights of very unpopular minorities, like asylum seekers, prisoners, suspected terrorists, uh, and so on, people who don't uh, have much weight in the electoral marketplace. But they're entitled to rights just as much as you and I. And sometimes people forget rights aren't just for nice people like ourselves, but for everyone and there will, I think, be clashes between the judges and government. And I personally think that is rather healthy. Again, quoting Lord Bingham, who I think was probably the greatest judge we'd seen since the war, he said, there are some countries where judges always agree with the government, but they're not countries in which any of us would like to live. 
Okay, so trouble ahead, but you see it as potentially healthy. For well, I think it's creative point. conflict. Right, um, right. I think we can't rely on Parliament to protect the rights of unpopular minorities. We do need judges there, and also to protect the integrity of the whole electoral and political process. I think that is very important too. We can't leave it in the hands of an elected government. Um, that there must be someone to hold the ring to, to be an arbiter, and those people must be judges who are accustomed to weigh evidence in an impartial way. On all this, I strongly disagree with Jonathan Sumption in his read lectures, who thinks the judges have gone too far. I think in some respects they haven't gone far enough. <laughs> it's worth noting that our judges have much less power than those in the other 27 countries of the European Union because uh, the Human Rights Act does not give them the power to strike down legislation, only to issue a declaration of incompatibility, which has no legal force. It's a pure statement. And we've seen on the question of prisoners' voting rights that government is procrastinating. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights said that a blanket ban on prisoners' voting rights was unconstitutional. Now, the government has agreed to accept that verdict, but hasn't so far done anything about it. So I think there's perhaps an argument for saying judges ought to have an even more active role in our constitution. You mentioned earlier that the one of the reasons for so much of the turbulence, political turbulence since the referendum was that the people or the majority of people voting in a referendum had a different view to most of the people in parliament and most of the people in government. Do uh, you think the fact that this disjuncture, and it seems to go deeper into actual value systems, it goes beyond just the, the specific question of EU membership. There seems to be competing value systems. Do you think there are ways of bringing back together the people with those who govern them? Are there, are there constitutional experiments we can try that might help with that? Well, there's a cultural conflict that runs right within the parties, inside both major parties. And it can be summed up, perhaps, rather crudely, by saying it's a conflict between Hampstead and Hartlepool, <laughs> and the Liberal left in Hampstead, and uh, the working-class vote in Hartlepool. And it certainly runs through the middle of the Labour Party, probably through the middle of the Tories as well, between the financial elite in London and many of their voters. And you may argue the parties are held together rather artificially, and that may be why we're seeing some degree of fragmentation of the party system. We certainly saw that in the European Parliament elections. The obvious remedy, I think, is proportional representation. And I think one of the reasons for the feeling of the left behind, that no one takes any notes of them, is that many of them live in safe constituencies, perhaps particularly in the North East, and therefore no one bothers to canvass them during elections. Their votes don't count. Now, it's worth noting, of course, in the referendum, every single vote counted, so they came out to vote. And it may be that proportional representation is holding together, sorry, first past the post, is holding together incompatibles within the major parties, which would be better driven apart. That some Conservative MPs have much more in common with the Brexit Party, others more in common with the Liberal Democrats. And similar Labour Party, some have a lot in common with Corbyn, but others perhaps more in common with the Liberal Democrats. But as we've seen from Change UK, the first-past-the-post system is very cruel to new parties. Perhaps we do need a change in the electoral system, uh, which will allow uh, opinion to flourish in a more natural way. We're now on the, the brink, brink of a new Prime Minister uh, taking power. Uh, do you 
do you see any reason to believe that whoever that may be, uh, it's down to two people possible at the moment, uh, will be more successful than the last two prime ministers were in managing the referendum and the and the European issue? I think the new prime minister will be under tremendous pressure to get Britain out of the European Union by October 31st. And I think once that is done, a lot of the problems connected with Europe may recede into the background and people come back to their other concerns with the health service, the economy, and so on and so on. I think as long as we are in the European Union and the outcome of the referendum is not settled, there will be this uh, alienation because of the feeling in the country that the elite are ignoring a result they don't like. Uh, my suspicion is that, and it's only a guess, it might be proved wrong by the time the podcast appears, my, my suspicion is that we will in fact leave the European Union on October 31st with or without a deal. But as I say, it's a pure guess and it may be totally wrong. Now, what are you working on next? Well, um, what I've done, I've just given some lectures at Yale, Stimson Lectures, on Britain and Europe looking at the geopolitical consequences of Brexit for Britain and for Europe. But my long-term project, which has been interrupted by the wretched Brexit, <laughs> is on the first volume of a series of books on the political and constitutional history of Britain in the 20th century, which is beginning in 1895 and ending in 1997, so I don't get involved in current politics, as it were. And I've reached 1910 when Brexit interrupted it, but I hope to finish shortly to get up to 1914, and that will be the end of the first volume. And that, of course, involves lots of constitutional issues, the reform of the House of Lords, Home Rule for Ireland, the rebellion in Ulster, suffragettes, and so on. And is it fair to say that that period, the pre-First World War period, which was in a way we were saved by it, by something even, from it by something even worse, the First World War, is, is a period of uh, constitutional turbulence that's comparable to the one we're in now? I think that's absolutely right, and of course then, by contrast with today, it almost led to civil war violence, uh, as you imply, in Ulster. I think the same would happen if there was any threat to Ulster's membership of the United Kingdom. I think Northern Ireland would not accept it peacefully, and there would be violence, a uh, threat of violence again. But you're absolutely right, and it's extraordinary that when the war broke out, Asquith wrote to his girlfriend uh, in East London that it was the greatest stroke of luck he'd ever had in his life, because it meant civil war... The prospect of the war had ended, and both Irish nationalists and unionists then supported the war. But I think there's another lesson from that period which is very relevant to, to, to today, and it's this, that the war in 1914 ended a century of peace in which none of the major powers had fought against each other. They'd been involved in local wars, like the Crimean War, but there'd been no major war, and people took it for granted. And some people, not so much in Britain, I think, but in Germany and Austria, took the view that the system could withstand a small shake-up and that it could be contained. Now, Europe has known peace since 1945, in my view, in part, in large part, due to the European Union, which is basically, I think, a peace project. But there are some people now in Europe, and even more in America, uh, I'm referring perhaps to President Trump, who think also the system needs a bit of a shake-up, but that a shake-up can be contained. I think that is very, very dangerous. OK, on that note, thank you very much, Vernon. Uh, you can 
You can read the book Beyond Brexit Towards the British Constitution by Vernon Bogdanoff. I'm sure it's available uh, from all usual outlets. Uh, to all our listeners, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Governance Podcast with Vernon Bogdanoff. To learn more about our upcoming podcasts and events at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at at CSGSKCL. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast. Mm-hmm.